This is Cambridge Judge Business School's online knowledge centre with expert commentary, analysis and insights into the issues of the day. The 18th National Congress of the Communist Party of China has laid out the country's way forward with a new generation of leaders. The incoming fifth generation was warned, in no uncertain terms, about the dangers of corruption and unbalanced economic growth. Obviously, political change was high on the agenda, as was China's rapid growth, which has seen the country progress in a decade from the sixth biggest world economy to the second largest. There was a warning that China faces both unprecedented opportunities and great risks. It included the challenge of unbalanced, uncoordinated and unsustainable development and the need to accelerate the creation of a new model to ensure that growth is based on improved quality and performance. The Congress came at a time when China's economic growth has dipped from double to single figures. Professor Peter Williamson has experienced Chinese companies and the country's economy for almost 30 years. So, has the bubble burst? Has the bubble burst? Well, I think you're going to see short-term fluctuations when you've got a very fast growth rate. And and let's uh, be clear, the growth rate's fallen to something around 7 or 7.5%. I mean, we in Britain or Europe would be delighted to have the half percent. So you need to see this in the context of an economy which is still essentially building a country in terms of infrastructure, in terms of taking people out of poverty. And so there's an underlying long-term growth strength that's there. And of course, you're going to get downward fluctuations. The government was very concerned about a property bubble which was building up. They saw what happened in the US with that property bubble and the the consequences of it. So they started to very severely restrict lending for real estate. That's caused a slowdown in the economy. Now they're taking the feet off the brakes and letting it come back up again. So I think all these fluctuations in the short term, you need to see in the context of a fundamentally solid, strong growth rate. And it's been announced that their target was 7%. So we're not falling below where they wanted the economy to be. And I suspect that you'll start to see a pickup now, but probably not to the double digits that we saw uh, prior to the, the global financial crisis. So they are watching other economies very carefully and making sure that they don't make those mistakes? I think so. I think, uh, you know, the Chinese government's extremely concerned with instability in a, in a country as large and complex as China, and therefore they worry as to what would happen if if this kind of crash that occurred in, in Wall Street and in the city were to hit China. They don't want that to happen. But the big benefit they have is that they've got much more room to manoeuvre on policy because there's low budget deficits, their borrowing capacity is still there. So they're not stuck in the problem that most Western governments are stuck in, that they don't have any levers. We don't have any levers to use. The Chinese are still driving the car with lots of levers to, to be able to adjust adjust things. And so that's what I think you've seen in this downturn, uh, an adjustment. But there are also longer term things happening, which have been announced, the shift of the structure of the economy from being driven by exports to domestic demand. And eventually, you'll start to see 
uh, consumption spending are replacing infrastructure as the driver of the Chinese domestic economy. Infrastructure, in my view, still has a lot of legs for quite some time in, in the future. That change in emphasis is very radical, isn't it? It is radical, but it's necessary because you can't go on building new roads, bridges, factories, machinery forever. Eventually, that has to slow down and turn to consumption in the domestic economy. But I've actually done some studies of this by comparing the pattern of infrastructure investment relative to GDP in China versus Japan in its growth years versus Germany after the war. And I find that while China's been slightly higher, it's not way out of line with what those economies, Korea also, were doing during their period when they were really building their infrastructure and the manufacturing capacity and the capacity of the economy uh, during that growth phase. So it's, it needs to be seen in the context of China's long-term development. And I think that's still got probably another 20 years to run. But gradually within that 20 years period, you'll see infrastructure and new equipping of factories and so on becoming less important to GDP and consumption becoming more important to GDP and also services growing relative to manufacturing and agriculture. Headlines have been attracted by areas called ghost cities. Yes, ghost cities. Well, there are some ghost cities around. Uh, just as everywhere else in the world, real estate speculators make mistakes. <laughs> when you've had a big boom, uh, as has happened with the fast growth in China, people have speculatively built these uh, areas and there's the local governments have been very much complicit in this because they see this as a way to develop their local area and they think, well, we don't really take the risk if, it's, if it becomes a ghost town. But again, that needs to be seen in the context of China's long-term development. So if you have an economy that's basically a slow growth and flat, as in the West, and you build a lot of real estate, it takes forever to actually uh, soak that up. But in a fast-growth economy, the ghost cities will become full. And I remember back in 1992 when they started to build Pudong on the opposite side of the river from the main part of Shanghai, and there were all these skyscrapers empty, and people said, this is going to be a ghost town forever. Within a few years, the growth of the, had absorbed all of those buildings, and today Pudong is a city of 7 million people. So you have to, look, again, look at these cycles are going to be different in the context of an economy which is fundamentally building the country and the infrastructure versus mature economies where it takes a long time to wash out some of these excesses in the system. How does the, the Chinese psyche cope with the incredible change in communication that's been going on over the last few years? Because at one time, information was, was dealt with very rapidly, and, and in some instances, very brutally. But you can't do that today now, because you've got the equivalent to Google, or you've got Twitter accounts and Facebook and all of that. I think Web 2.0 and Google and Twitter and the Chinese equivalents like Baidu have, have really fundamentally changed the government's ability to control information used to be that if they didn't put it on China Central Television, people didn't know about it. But now things uh, flow across the, the uh, equivalent of Twitter accounts and between mobile phones, of which there are around uh, 800 million in China, uh, very fast. And therefore, the government's having to take much more notice of public opinion. And now it's, it's 
in fact set up a whole division which monitors uh, these these uh, movements and what's on the airwaves, if you like, not so much to try and control them, but so it knows what people are thinking of what are going on. And you see now, generally, Chinese politicians are much more responsive to public opinion. They don't uh, work in a democratic system, clearly, so they don't respond by being thrown out of office and other people being put in. But they're very aware that their legitimacy comes from continued growth and from being seen as competent. And so they are reacting to people's opinions, and you see changes in, in policies related to that. And the, also uh, the influence of the central government on local governments, because local governments have often been the real problem. There's a lot of people in these local governments that still uh, act like the old uh, communist <laughs> controllers. And I think the central government's moved forward faster, and, and it's trying to bring these uh, local governments more into line. So I think the information and communication revolutions totally changed the uh, ability of the government to control information in China, even though there is uh, still a firewall externally between China and the rest of the world. But I don't think all of that's going to lead to a kind of revolution or democracy overnight. The biggest single change I find in China is that there's now a middle class who own assets, they own properties, they own cars, they, they have secure business positions, they own private companies, and they are really pressing very hard for rule of law, for a judicial system, a legal system that protects their property rights and can't just have some a party administrator come and make some decision which devalues all their assets and and uh, removes all the value of the hard work that they've put into things. So that's the that's the next stage that I think you're going to see a lot of pressure from this this middle class for a, a better, more independent legal system. Peter Williamson, thank you very much. This programme was produced by the Cambridge Judge Business School as part of its online broadcast series. Music